Welcome to Rome Alliance. At our church, we believe the gospel is good news for every aspect of our lives. Today's message will bring hope to your heartache, healing to your brokenness, and an opportunity to experience Christ's love and redeeming power. As a body of believers, Rome Alliance Church exists to glorify God, follow Jesus, and invite others to share in the hope, healing, and love of the gospel. It's Father's Day, and so what better than a sermon on violence? Right? Did you know, since 1776, America has been at war 93% of those years? Since 1776. In the last 3,400 years of recorded history, the world has only known 268 years of peace. You know, we live in a Christian, maybe, worldview, and oftentimes we separate from that and we say, oh, well, you know, God is of love, and the violence, we shouldn't be in violence, and all these other pieces that kind of go along with it, but we can't escape the fact that history and the world around, around us is full of violence, even in the Bible. Now go and completely destroy the entire Malachite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. And Richard Dawkins says, Speaking of God, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, you can read the rest for you, acidal. But oftentimes, this is the argument that is said of people, I would believe in Jesus or of God if he wasn't so violent. How could a loving God be all about violence. And that was the question that was asked. This was the question that was submitted. And I found out who it was, and we had some violence to pay him back for his asking this question. His question was this, loving God versus Old Testament violence. How can we say he is a loving God, yet led so much violence? That's the question we have ahead of us, and the question I hope to address for us this morning. If you're a note-taker this morning, this is what would be considered a note-taker's dream. If you want to have this, the, the uh, slides that are up behind me, just get a hold of me after the service, and I'd be happy to email this entire uh, slide, uh, exact slides you see to you as well for your, for your use. But there's a lot in here, uh, and so hopefully there's a couple nuggets that you can take away. But often when we look at the, when we look at the story of violence in the Old Testament, we look at it in a very uh, focused way. We see a story, and we look at that specifically, in kind of like a vacuum. But we have to remember, when we read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is always pointing us forward to something else. It's always pointing us forward. And so we're going to see some of the different aspects of Old Testament violence and some connection points to how it ultimately points us forward. Again, these might not even be in a correct order. These, not, these are not in any particular order, uh, except for maybe the last one. But we're going to jump into some different ideas or concepts for why there was violence in the Old Testament. Are you ready? 
Uh, if you're not, you can leave. First off, there is violence in the Old Testament because it reveals a one true God. Throughout the, the Old Testament, there was this battle going on between God himself, Elohim, Yahweh, the one true God, the I Am, and other groups that would worship false gods, lowercase g. And so one of the reasons there was violence was because that was the way that God would, would reveal himself to people. We have the amazing thing in our time and place and culture of the Bible, and the Bible is one of the greatest ways that God has revealed himself to mankind. In the Old Testament, not, they didn't have this written word. They had stories they told, but it was actually in those moments that God was showing up himself, revealing exactly who he was. Let me give you one point in case. The ten plagues. You know the story of the Egyptians and the ten plagues? Well, interestingly enough, each one of the plagues that came were actually an attack on one of the Egyptian gods. All the way up into the last one. The last one being the death of the firstborn, which attacked Pharaoh's house, which in that case, Pharaoh was a god to the people. God walked in and said, no, I am God. None of these things are God. I am God. And that's really, ultimately, a battle in our life. The battle for following after God and worshiping other lowercase gods in our life. God showed up in a violent way in this case to reveal himself to people to say, no, I am the only God, the God of the universe who was uncreated here from the beginning of, of, of your time, but who is everlasting. There is no beginning or end for me, and I am him. But we see this as a theme. Even in Romans 1.20, pointing forward, God is always in the business of revealing himself. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can see the invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, right? These are divine things that were showing up in these plagues. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In this same passage of Romans, they talk about this idea of exchanging created things for the creator. It goes on there to talk about that those who worship created things, those who end up following after themselves, living in this sinful life, actually deserve to die. So Romans 1.20 essentially is a violent passage in that way. And so God is in the business of showing up to reveal who he is to other people. Again, we're going to cover these things really quick because there's so much here. If you want to have more discussion, if you want to go deeper, you can look more yourself or we can talk more. Let's go to the next one. The violence of the Old Testament is ultimately supernatural war. This one is one that maybe is a little bit different and maybe might stretch us a little bit this morning in our faith. And all I ask you to go do is do some more research. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it says this, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not be put, upon with, put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh, and in the future their normal lifespan will only be 120 years. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. There's an interesting fact. These Nephilites, 
The interesting thing is that, is that they are before the flood, and they show up after the flood. Well, if everybody was wiped out, how could they show up after the flood? Many Hebrew scholars believe that the Nephilim were actually divine beings sent by Satan to mingle with humans to go to war with God and his people. Again, this might be a stretch. At the time where in Genesis, God goes to war with the serpent, the serpent is going to war with God. And these giants ultimately represent a demonic power taking place. That these Nephilites were almost, would be considered demon-like or going against God. Here they show up in Numbers 13 in the, in the promised land. So they brought people to Israel and a better port of the land that is spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people who, were, who were saw them were of great height. And they, were, they saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Here we see them show up after the fact. These Nephilites in Genesis chapter 6, we see them in Numbers 13 again. If they were wiped out with the whole flood, why are they showing up here if they were still around? So God calls for the, the Israelites to wipe the Nephilim out. And so that's a battle that takes place. But the interesting thing is, they don't finish the job. And some of these giants scatter. And according to some Hebrew scholars, they say, some of these giants scatter to a place called uh, Gath, G-A-T-H. And that is where a man named Goliath came from, a Philistine. So they say, the, the battle between David and Goliath, which again is violent, is ultimately a finishing of part of doing away with what God had intended for them to do away with from the beginning. But this is a, ultimately a spiritual battle that's taking place. You see, we think of spiritual war as something that kind of happens that we can't see. But the Old Testament is a picture of what's happening, what's pointing forward. But what can be seen, maybe it will be more unseen. Or we battle spiritual things and we chalk them up to other things. You see, the Israelites would understand something like this. Put on at all time, sorry, put on of all God, sorry, put on of God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The Israelites would have understood this. In the Old Testament, it was a physical battle between the Israelites, doing God's spiritual warfare for him. In our case, it says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but there is still spiritual warfare taking place around us that we are called to engage with. They would have understood this. Another, another way of this is translated is the principalities and the principles of darkness. They would understand the different rulers and setups of how an army or how a region was set up and so the Old Testament ultimately is a picture of the New Testament believer and that we have spiritual warfare we face, and this does not seem like a nice, gentle passage that Paul is referring to to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's go on here. The violence in the Old Testament ultimately protects and purifies God's people. The amazing thing about God is that God was always after a people for himself. The Israelites, and now... In our day and age, the Jew and the Gentile, 
the bride of Christ, the church. And one of the things that he was doing was protecting them and purifying them for himself. Here we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, talking again of what they were going to be going into, he says this, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away following me to serve other gods. Always after a people, a jealous God for himself. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So is God going after people because he's an ethnic cleanser? No. He's after people to serve him and not follow after false gods. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones. That sounds nice and loving. Cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. For you are a, a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of this earth to be his people and his treasured possession. So God was after a people. So oftentimes, the Israelites would go to war because God was protecting them. Or in other cases, we see that there were the Amalekites who wanted to destroy the Israelites. They had to go to war to be protected, to be God's people. But also, this was one of the ways that God would sanctify his people by keeping them from people who follow false gods. Right? We, all, we, all, we, we might have heard the verse, right? Maybe you've had someone say this to you. You can't tattoo yourself. It says it in Leviticus. Anybody hear that one? Some of you that have tattoos in your hair, like I've, I've been shunned before for that verse. That verse was not talking about don't go out and get a tattoo. The verse was talking about that the group of people that they were intermingling with marked up their body as an act of worship to their God. And God did not want them marking up their bodies as an act of worship to another God. Does that make sense? He was after their hearts. And this took violence to get hold of their hearts. The golden calf. If you know that story. And they worship a false golden calf and they end up, half the, those who did that ended up right, perishing. Because God was after a people that were purified, holy after him. Not worshiping false gods or, or other gods or other forms of gods in life. A people. I had an email exchange with a mentor of mine. This mentor had been a, um, a president of several Christian colleges and a, a, a scholar, one of the brightest mans I, I've, I've come to know and uh, I'm going to share a couple of his email exchanges that I had. These were his answers to, to some of this here. He says this, When God sent the nations across the globe after Babel, he allowed other Elohim to have authority over them, but kept Israel for himself. Those nations became totally pagan. So in scriptures like Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 34, in order to cleanse the promised land and judge the heathen nations for their wickedness, God had the Israelites under Joshua devote those nations to the destruction. Hang on a second. To destruction so that they would not corrupt Israel. God was after a people for himself. Let's go to the next one. Where we'll be hanging more a little bit more in this morning. That the violence of the Old Testament makes God's future judgment plain. Prophet Nahum says this The Lord is a jealous God, a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
You see, there's an important question we have to ask ourselves that kind of goes along this idea of false gods, but living life our way, in our way, the question we have to ask ourselves is, in, re- in, in regards to a, a God who we would consider would allow violence to take place, we all have to come to a, address a question in our hearts this morning. Is sin really that bad? Is sin really that bad? Is it? The things that I've done, falling short of God's glory, living life for myself and my ways, is it really that bad to God? Is it? Or is it really no big deal, just happy that God loves me and I get to live life on my terms? A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of Holy, says this, God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for conscience of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity, while death draws every day nearer and the commander of pen goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. God is perfect. He has perfect justice. He's perfectly loved. He's perfectly merciful. He's perfect in his grace. It's who he is. And he's all things at all times. You might have heard a verse called, the wages of sin is death. Because in light of how perfect and holy God is, we all deserve death. And in this case, in the Old Testament, God was revealing to us today how deadly sin is in our lives. Here from Leviticus 18, talking about the Canaanites, it begins in 18.1, and he's telling them, do not live like the Canaanites. He says this, don't live like them. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. They say the Canaanites, you can go on and read actually before this, the different things the Canaanites did. And he tells them all these crazy things about who they were sleeping around with, including animals. Sorry to be blunt there, but that's in the word right there. They burned and they sacrificed children in the Canaanite. And he's saying these things are utterly abominable in my sight, even so much that he uses the words, the land vomited out its inhabitants. He goes on here, kind of tying together in Deuteronomy chapter 20. However, in the cities and the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jezebites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against your Lord, your God. God is not after people because he's an ethnic cleanser, misogynistic. He's after people in all ways. He's after a people for himself, but also the way that the world works that we live in is that all of us have to give an account for our lives. And in this case, in the Old Testament, God was laying that out in front of the people to tell the Israelites, when you do not repent of your sin, This is what happens to you. 
Again, going back to the verse we looked at. Wow. How could you allow something like that to happen? Let's consider a couple things as we look at this idea. Consider this. Number one, you're not God. Your standard of judgment is not perfect, but his is. God is the author, giver, and taker of life. He gives life. He's allowed to take it at any time. For some of us, it might not be actually being violently killed. It could be something else that God in his, in his days have numbered our days that he takes our life. Number four, women weren't innocent. Sometimes people think, women, how could they do that? Number five, a couple different ideas of protecting children. How could he allow children? A couple different ones that I've, I've come across. Number one, protecting children from entering into that sin. That's how deadly it is. Now, we can get in a whole other talk about the idea of what's called an age of accountability. But even uh, King David, of his son who died, he says, I will not, you will not be here with me again, but I will go and see you someday. Being with God was a lot better than living in these, with these people groups who were doing defile, amazing abominable things in the sight of God but each other. The other thing was, in terms of, especially when we think back to this idea of the spiritual warfare, God was eliminating bloodlines so that sin would not go on. Generational curses would not continue to take place in, in those lives. And God was eliminating bloodlines so those things would not happen. Number six, our moral duties are determined by God's commands. So that if God called the Israelites to go and wipe out a people group, Old Testament scholars would say this wasn't violence, it was actually fulfilling a command of God, and our moral commands are led by God. So because God said it, now if I take life into my own hands, right, that's the case. Now we don't really necessarily see that in a New Testament way, and that's not any, that is not, um, uh, I'm not endorsing anybody in our society to take life into their own hand and, and do it in the name of God. Hear me on that one. Number seven, though, here's the amazing thing that hopefully turns our eyes upward. He pleads for the wicked to turn from their ways. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As surely I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do we read that right there? How much pleasure does God take in the death of other people and the wicked? None. But we have to come to the realization that the wages of sin is death, literally death. In the Old Testament, it was right in front of our eyes to be able to read, to see how deadly our sin is. But rather, they turn from their ways and live. He says, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Let's look at it another way of an Old Testament passage, where Moses is seeing God, and the Lord passes in front of him and says, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Put those two things side by side. Go and wipe out the Amalekites, but I am filled of unfailing love and faithfulness. Why? Because God's judgment is perfect, His love is perfect, and that's what it looks like lived out for us. We need to consider a couple things from the Old Testament, though. There was a Canaanite woman named Rahab who was saved because of her faith. You can go read that story in Joshua 2 through 6. Turn. The city of Nineveh, 
Jonah was actually mad that the whole city turned. God was going to, in 40 days, you guys are cleaned out. They, they repent, and they're saved. Ezekiel 18, 21, it says, But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live, and they will not die. You see, ultimately, reading the Old Testament, it leaves you hanging someplace when you get done. And you're like, there's got to be a, a, either more to this story or hopefully there's a, a better fix to all of this. And one of the things that was revealed was that a Messiah was going to come through the Israelite people. And so God had to protect the Israelites to preserve the Messianic bloodline. That if the Israelites were wiped off the map, there would be no Jesus. And all of us would be doomed for eternity. There would be no Jesus. So God had to protect that. And so ultimately, when you read the Old Testament and you see Old Testament violence, always keep in mind that it's always pointing to Jesus and the cross. You see, when we read the Old Testament, we're like, my goodness, these people are absolutely messed up. You might even read someone who was a man of God or a woman of God and be like, what kind of decisions did they make? Why would I want to be a Christian? Well, their lives were out for the whole world to see. But it was a constant reminder that we needed someone who was perfect to take our place. Perfect. That in and of ourselves, at the end of the day, we can't do it. And the Old Testament violence was a constant reminder that we are in need of a Savior. We are in need for someone to save us from our sin. Another part of this email exchange I had, my mentor wrote this. Being offended by God's righteous judgment is evidence of a man-centric view of reality. Humanism is the, is the mode of our self-centered culture. Rather than rejoicing in a holy God who went to elaborate steps to provide a God-centered people through whom he could send a Savior, earthly people get offended because they love fallen humanity more than they love their loving Creator. And Father. So ultimately, the Old Testament was leading to the point where God says, you know what? All of this violence, all of this, these things that I've laid upon these people, I'm going to lay on a person. And that person is Jesus. That Paul says that God who made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That God's divine wrath was not then settled on a people group, but it was a person that he would lay all of our sins, iniquities, and pain on. The, uh, the Israelites understood this idea of a guilt offering, that they would put something in place of something they've done, and that would take the place, that sin for them. But as we look to the new, that Jesus was satisfied God's wrath against us. He took our place. Instead of me having to take on all of that, Jesus took it for me. Peter says it this way, Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Do we think the cross was just this loving moment? 
filled with so much just good feelings? Probably not. The cross, you can go read about Roman crucifixion, was the worst way to die. Violent. Your body would be torn to shreds by the time you even got to the cross. Placed up there for you to suffocate by the way you hung. But the picture of the Old Testament is to remind her of that Jesus steps in your place. Because I'm just like the Canaanites. I'm just like the Amalekites. I love to worship things other than God sometimes. But God's like, no, in my love for you, I'm going to place it on a person. Let's consider a couple other things about this, though. Number one, Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven and describes it more vividly. That apart from Jesus, we spend eternity apart from God. This isn't just a a great story to tell. This is life. Satan will eventually face final judgment. And again, the cross was violent. Let's fast forward now. Ultimately, the Bible is one big story. It begins in the garden, ends in a city, and all the way it's always pointing to the final destination that Jesus brings us to. Ultimately, Jesus, the treasure. But let's look at this now as we, as we begin to close out the Bible. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they were done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Sounds violent to me as well. But the wages of our sin is death. Not only physical death here, but it's eternal death, separated from him forever. But again, the reminder is that in a, in a big picture, we can get so focused on the, 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 the hard things, the wrong things, the violent things, but the Bible's always bringing us back full circle But even though the wages of sin, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still God-haters, while we were still violent ourselves, Jesus died for you. He wasn't saying, clean up your life, then I'll die for you. Get your stuff together and I'll die for you. While we were still a mess, Jesus died for us. That's the amazing picture of God. He's perfect, and because of that, someone who is imperfect, born into sin, cannot be in his presence without someone taking that place of my sin for me, and that person was Jesus, and that is a free gift open to anyone. I came across a story this week by H.A. Ironside, an 1800s theologian, And he said one of the most impactful stories that he had heard was a a story of a man preaching when he was a young boy who had told a story about some people he knew back when they were going out on the Oregon Trail. And the story goes that these people were going out in in their uh, wagons and they saw a brush fire off to the side. And they began to watch it and watch it and they began to see, oh no, 
if we wait here, we're going to be, we're right in this line of the brush fire. They all begin to panic. They look back, and they literally just had come over a river, and they're thinking, well, I don't even know if we can actually get back across the river fast enough before the fire catches us. When all of a sudden, one of the leaders of the group says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this big patch out, which is about a, maybe a 300-yard distance, and we're going to burn this 100-yard patch. So there's about 200 yards of the fire coming, and then it's going to hit our burned patch. And the little girl looks at him and says, there's a little girl in the group, she's like, why would we do something like that? And the man looked at her and said, my child, the flames cannot reach us, for we are standing where the fire has been. That the fire would have died out in the place where the fire had already been, which is an ultimate picture of what Jesus has done for us. He's taking on the judgment, the flames of our sin for us. That we can walk in freedom, we can walk in his love, we can walk and be with him in his presence forever and eternity. But the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus taking our place for us. As we leave here, I want to give us four things to think about. Again, this was a crash course. We could have an eight-week sermon series on this. We probably could have spent four hours on this this morning. Crash course this morning. Four things to consider. Number one, my understanding of the one true God matters. What I believe to be true about God matters. If you say God is one thing, was well, there another thing you're not, not seeing? If you're saying, I'm not going to be a Christian because God is violent, take a look at the big picture. Why? Why was he violent? Why would he allow violence to take place? Now, some people say God is violent. I don't think God reveals himself as a violent God. But that is just, again, the wages of sin. He allowed violence. Differentiation there. So my understanding of God matters in life. It matters to everything we do in life. Secondly, the thing I kept thinking about all week long was, what idols do I have? Because God is in the business of smashing those things in your life. And in our culture, just because God isn't sending an army to your house to smash over your poles and your sacred stones, doesn't mean he's not trying to get your attention to get rid of those things in your life. Because that's in the business he's, of, he's after a people, after himself, not of the things of the world. The church. Another thought. I know we oftentimes can just be either, maybe not we, but maybe I, can be apathetic in my faith. Can just think, oh, I'm just going to go out there and, you know, love people. It's going to be a great day. That's good. But there's no neutral ground in the kingdom of God. It's not just walking in rose fields. Now here's the amazing thing. You come to faith in Christ. He does bring joy. He does bring great things into our life. He redeems our brokenness. The gospel's good news for all things. But guess what? The enemy is right there at your doorstep looking to bring you back into your old ways of living. There is no neutral ground in the kingdom of God. But we wake up often days and just do what we want to do or make our schedules. But who is really directing those things? Choose today who you're going to serve because there's no neutral ground. And lastly, the biggest question of them all, have I repented and turned from my sins? Have you yourself personally believed in the person of Jesus Christ who walked this earth 
2,000 years ago as a man sent by God on a rescue mission to live the life I couldn't live, to die the death I deserved, who took my place, who put the flames on himself so that I would be able to walk in freedom and walk in the Holy Spirit, but in one day be an eternity where God will wipe away every sorrow, tear, and pain forever. Have I done that? If I haven't, the picture of the Old Testament is ultimately our final destination, apart from Him. It's not something just to feel good. This is life. This is the way God has created life to be. The question is, is do you believe that? Or are you still in the driver's seat? Today is an amazing day as we look at Old Testament violence to say, you know what? I'm going to allow Jesus to take my place. I'm going to let that violence to rest on his shoulders so I can walk in freedom, in new life. My life can be different. It can be changed and changed for eternity. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We pray you were equipped and inspired to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. To stay connected, like us on Facebook or join us on a Sunday morning here at Rome Alliance Church.